0: You are wonderful. And Harcourt's wonderful, and you're wonderful. And you're wonderful. And I'm wonderful, too. You now, come on, let me wonderful. help you take off your things. Well, we're all going to go to the wedding. And hey, you're going to be there, too. I'll be there. Harcourt's going to marry Galatea, and we're all going to live together in a great big time. And I feel terrible. But isn't it wonderful?
1: And mm. tomorrow, you're
0: going to have a wonderful hangover, and that won't be so wonderful. Wonderful as well. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin.
1: I'm David Daw.
0: And this week, we watched Stage Door, the latest installment in the 1937 nominees. And and it was something else.
1: yeah. This wacky comedy about, whoops, nope, oh no, oh no, nope, whoops. Um.
0: I So, I, I have to say, like, I don't know if it's that I watched it yesterday, which was June 1st, not to date this podcast, and I was just, like, totally in a pride mindset, or what?
1: Oh no, I was going to text you, powerful lesbian energy.
0: Dude, it is lesbian!
1: Powerful lesbian energy.
0: Fan service <laughs> from the- beginning to end. And I was very much here for it. And even when it became a completely different movie in the last 16 minutes, and I actually checked because I was like, I want to know the timestamp for when this movie just went whoop. And it kind of worked. I can't believe they managed to make it work. But it was 16 minutes from the end.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I one I did the exact same thing where I just opened up the timestamp and was like, I, there's less than a third of this movie left, right? Because we really shifted tones.
0: There was a sixth of the movie left. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I also, I agree with you that like, we were suddenly in a completely different movie, but I kind of liked that movie too.
0: So I don't even know if we should start, I guess we should start with the plot first so that everything that we say afterward makes any sense. Ginger Rogers is Gene Maitland who is a a scrappy working actor slash dancer, performer, whatever, in New York City, and she lives at a women's boarding house that is specifically for women actors. There's, like, 20 of them in the house. I don't even know how many. There's a lot. She has a good friend who is Judy Canfield, who is played by Lucille Ball, who is adorable. Her, like, main rival, I guess, in the house is... Linda Shaw, who's a slightly older, would you she's supposed to be older, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's unclear how much and how much is just Ginger Rogers giving her shit, right? But she is very clearly, I would say, like, at least five years beyond where the rest of them are, like in their life. I don't know if she's actually that much older.
0: She's actually just been in New York for five years. more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I would kind of believe that.
0: It's never explicitly said, but she's pretty clearly sleeping with this big deal producer, Tony Powell, played by Adolf Menjou. There is another woman who lives in the house- named Kay Hamilton, who is really kind of down on her luck. She had a really good year last year and she had great reviews in whatever the play was that she was in. And she's been trying to get this part that Tony Powell, the producer, I guess would be casting. It seems like he casts the shows as well as produces them, which whatever, that's fine. But she's broke and is like not eating and just keeps thinking like, next week I'm going to get the part. Next week I'm going to get the part. And then into The Footlights, which is the name of The Boarding House, comes Terry Randall, an heiress who wants to become an actor, played by Katherine Hepburn, with, like, some really hot big lesbian energy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, Ginger Rogers has fairly large lesbian energy, Katherine Hepburn has... Really big lesbian energy in this movie, and it's great.
0: And of course, they immediately dislike one another, and the woman who runs the boarding house puts them together as roommates, and then it sort of goes from there. Hijinks ensue. There's a lot of really, really good banter in this movie. It is super funny. Ginger Rogers somehow gets involved with Tony Powell, How does he first see her? I forget now.
1: They're at, like, a dance studio and practicing. Right,
0: right, right. uh, And he sees
1: Ginger Rogers and, quite sensibly, immediately wants to sleep with Ginger Rogers. Right. But the problem is, he is an asshole.
0: And also a man.
1: (laughs) That's, yes. In this movie in particular, that is what, yes.
0: (laughs) She, like, goes on a few dates with him, despite the fact that Linda, the older or at least wiser woman, has been seeing him for a while. Linda is like, yeah, don't don't get your hopes up, kid. Then Terry Randall's dad comes to town and is like, are you sure that you want to do this? And she says, yeah, I'm sure. And he says, well, if you failed, would you come home, or do you have too much pride for that? And She says, no, I would I would definitely come home if I failed, but I want to give it a shot. So her dad goes to Tony Powell and tries to get her cast in this show. For the part that Kay Hamilton wanted,
1: though weirdly, this is all played as a big mystery. Who is who is doing a weird contract to get Catherine Hepburn's character cast as the lead is like done through an intermediary, and no one knows who it is. And it's like, I mean, it's oh, that's the-
0: right. It's so clear that I completely forgot that there's like a reveal. Yeah. <laughs> At opening night, that it's her dad. But yeah,
1: from the moment somebody is like, my client, which is to remain an- it's the dad. (laughs) I know it's the dad.
0: (laughs) The idea is that she will get cast in this show, and because she doesn't have any experience, she'll totally bomb. And during rehearsals, like, she is totally insufferable and not very good. And then on opening night, she is stressed out about the first speech that she gives in the play- And Kay comes in and says, oh, well, this is how I would do it. And shows her some things because she had been prepping for this part. And also Kay repeatedly says, like, this was a a woman's life. And at one point says it was her life.
1: (laughs) It's very, the Kay stuff is weird. And we will get into it once we've gotten into the plot stuff, because like, there's a lot of levels on which like what's going on with Kay is very up in the air to me right but after dropping fucking hint after goddamn hint of just like oh it matters so much to me you have to like every single hint that like she is not handling this well kate leaves and Catherine hepburn who's i am just not gonna call her terry randall at all in this podcast she's just Catherine hepburn Catherine hepburn leaves to go off to opening night Kay walks up the stairs while hearing voices and giving the best crazy eyes I have ever seen in my entire life.
0: I really have to give it to Andrea Leeds because she sold me. Like this had been just a really funny verging on like vaudeville patter movie
1: the scene with katherine hepburn and ginger rogers and adolf minju at his apartment is like straight up screwball comedy yeah it's like a straight screwball comedy scene and it's maybe 15 minutes before maybe andrea leads hears voices gets crazy eyes and then jumps out of a window
0: yes killing herself yes all of the girls know about this and go to opening night of the show anyway, because, I mean, they're theater people. I mean, they were, like, on the way, I think, most of them.
1: There's that, and there's also, it was, at least to me it was implied that they were all on board with Ginger Rogers' plan of disrupting the whole show and fucking with Terry for essentially killing Kay, because they all blame her for it, because Kay's spent the whole movie going like, oh, this part is my life. This part is me. I'm so perfect for this part. If I don't get this part, I don't know what I'll do. But apparently never specified what part it was to Katharine Hepburn. So she did not realize she had gotten that part. Right. And Ginger Rogers comes in and says... After every one of your lines, I'm going to scream, that should have been Kay's line. Which is the most brutal thing I could possibly imagine as a heckle in the universe.
0: Right. And Catherine Hepburn is, like, actually very upset. She is not cold about it at all. Like, she's distraught and she's like, I can't go on. And then Ginger Roger says this. And then this old woman who lives at the Footlights, whose name is Anne Luther, she thinks that she is... No, I take that back. She does not think that she's hot stuff. She knows that she is her career is basically over, but she acts as if she's hot stuff and basically coaches the young girls on their acting and has been coaching, apparently unsuccessfully, Catherine Hepburn. Tells her, you know, you have to go on, you have to do this for Kay. And then Catherine Hepburn, moved so much by the death of her friend goes out and gives this absolutely incredible performance. And then when it's over, it gives a curtain speech saying that, you know, none of that that anyone saw had anything to do with her, that it was all because of Kay Hamilton, who had died that evening. And then there's like a montage where it becomes clear that Katherine Hepburn's character has become this wild star, but she's still living in the boarding house with all the girls Because lesbian.
1: (laughs) Right. And like she and Ginger Rogers have very clearly taken on like older caretaker roles at this boarding house of like... We're going to look after the girls to make sure nothing that happened to Kay ever happens to anybody else. And also, we definitely make out the moment we're off camera. <laughs> yes. That 100% for sure that's happening.
0: They are mom and dad of the boarding house, and it is hot. Yeah. And then Lucille Ball ends up leaving to marry some dude and is crying the whole time. And everyone thinks that it's awful because, again, lesbian. And also, like, she has to move to Seattle and stop being an actor, I guess. But I'm pretty sure it's because she also is a hot femme lesbian in in this universe. The end <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this this movie is like. I have to say, it's definitely my favorite movie that we've watched for this year. It's definitely in my top five of any that we've watched for the project. It may be because it appeals very specifically to my sensibilities with its big lesbian energy, but...
1: I mean, I have to say, uh, this movie does have big lesbian energy, but it kind of is lucky it has that. Because I think looking at this through like a heteronormative, of course nobody's making out here. However, could you? It's the, it's, this is a code movie. Lens, the banter can kind of get exhausting sometimes.
0: Mm, okay.
1: I'm really not trying to bash this movie too hard. I also quite liked this movie. It is definitely front runner for 1937 for me right now. It came up a little bit short of like one of my favorite movies we've watched for this project because I did a little bit feel like I've got to do this non-dominant lesbian read for the movie to be fun, because if you're reading it as a movie about a bunch of straight girls that want to get famous on Broadway, it's kind of just okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I would say that one of the things that I really liked about it was, in a number of ways, it was similar to the first Broadway Melody, where it takes a look at you know how difficult it is for girls to make it on Broadway, but that movie, even while it definitely passed the Bechtel test and it had like a feminist slant, there was still so many more ways in which men were shaping their lives than there were in Stage Door, where it seemed like Adolf Menju was essentially like the only man <laughs> in New York, I guess, casting anything, and the girls seemed to always be getting the upper hand. On any of the guys, including Adolf Menju slash Tony Randall, the producer, which I really enjoyed.
1: <laughs> I agree with that. One of the things that makes that last 16 minute stretch so weird is like, Adolf menjou doesn't get his comeuppance. The girls do not triumph over the sexism of Broadway. Nothing is really overturned by Katherine Hepburn's character becoming famous, um, which the whole movie up until the sort of scene where you realize like, oh, she's actually not very good <laughs> really seem to be leading to this oh, she's coming in here with this different energy. This we might say big <laughs> lesbian energy. And that's like overturning stuff left and right and it's changing everybody's lives and like things are turning out for the better now that Catherine Hepburn's oh, Kay just died. Um
0: That's true. I mean she does get She does get one over on him a couple of times. I mean, first of all, she barges into his office after Kay faints in his office waiting for a part and, like, chews him out. And then later on in the movie, when he's going to offer her the part because he's being paid to do so by definitely not her dad. Oh, it's her dad. He has this whole shtick that he pulls where he's got a framed picture of a little boy and a framed picture of a woman. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is my son and my wife. But, you know... We're separated, so we just live separate lives, so you can sleep with me, and it'll be okay. And she's like, actually, your son is older than you are, because that's a picture for a military boarding academy that has been used for, like, decades, because my brother went there. The woman was, like, from an ad or something? I wasn't quite clear on it.
1: Yeah, she's just been doing a lot of photo modeling, was her guess, I think she said. That is her getting one over on him. And that whole scene is like so super satisfying and is also like what I thought the tone of this movie was until it takes a hard left.
0: In that scene, too, is where Ginger Rogers shows up and she's upset with him and is like, I thought I was in love with you and discovers Catherine Hepburn on the floor acting all like, oh, I'm drunk and like we were flirting and da da da. And it's brutal, but she does it so that Ginger Rogers realizes that the guy is a piece of shit.
1: Well, she does it because she wants to make out with Ginger Rogers.
0: Yeah, by making her realize that Adolf Menchu is a piece of shit.
1: <laughs> that scene is great. All the scenes in his apartment are, like, one of the things I want to talk about is how weirder and creepier and more of a sexual harasser he seems because this is a code movie and they can't say anything than if he was just straight up and asshole who was cheating on his wife. Mm -hmm. Instead, he has this sad sack story about pretending to cheat on a non-existent wife, because that really gets the ladies going. And also just like before anything even happens with Ginger Rogers, because she's drunk, the moment she is like not fun drunk anymore, he not only like ushers her out, but repeatedly talks about how the lawyers will settle up anything that needs to be settled up. And it's like, That is so much more terrifying than if he had, like, physically assaulted her.
0: Because what it leads me to believe is that has happened a number of times.
1: Exactly. He's got it all figured out. Like, this is so routine for him.
0: Yeah, the lawyers have papers already written. Yeah. They just entered names. Yeah. That definitely did come off that way. And I had read previously that Adolf Menchu and Catherine Hepburn really did not like one another and did not get along at all. Well, he was a Republican and she was like, very against the un-American activities stuff and he said that she was a socialist and i'm like no wonder they hated each other because this movie would have set them at odds every moment they were on screen together yeah and she's always getting one up on him or yelling at him or something and otherwise in this movie he is the one who is totally in control of everyone The other girls in the boarding house, I feel so bad giving them short shrift because unlike the dead-end kids, they did all have their own personalities and their own, like, eccentricities.
1: Yeah, honestly, and this is just down to the haircuts. I had almost no trouble figuring out who anybody, like really down bill at the boarding house was. I would sometimes get Lucille Ball and Ginger Rogers confused <laughs> because they had really similar haircuts and often very similar plot lines. It's only once Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn start kind of being more of a pair that I'm like, oh, that one's Ginger Rogers.
0: They also look a lot alike. Yeah. And have very similar vocal timbres.
1: There were definitely like two or three times where like Ginger Rogers would like arrive from out on a date and I would be like, wasn't she the one who was just like doing all the bon ma downstairs at the, oh no, that must've been Lucille Ball.
0: There were times where they had really drastically different hairstyles. And I was like, how did her hair change to that? So, oh wait, that's the, that's not that one. Okay. All right.
1: But yeah, the sort of minor one joke girls at the boarding house all have really good one jokes. There's the dumb one. There's the, like, one that makes all the food that's bad at making the food. And they're all, like, really fun. And I'm like, oh, it's this one again when they show up.
0: There's Eve, who... uh, Eve is probably my favorite and is the clearest, like, dyke in the whole movie. But Eve was great for two reasons. One, she has a cat that when we first meet her, the cat is literally draped around her neck like a stole. She also, at the end, when the cat has babies, is like, mad at the cat for being a girl because she always thought that the cat was a boy whose name was henry and catherine hepburn is like oh well that's easy just rename her henrietta (laughs) all of the girls at the boarding house are really funny and the way that they work together is really good apparently they did a a lot of ad-libbing in this movie and edna ferber who was the writer used a lot of their banter to like pad out the script And it shows because it feels really natural and it also feels really funny. And it also is referenced because Catherine Hepburn is like, you all sound like you're, you know, vying to be comics. Don't you take acting seriously? And they're all like, no, because we live in New York and it's hell. Uh
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the specific line is after you're here for a year, let's see how seriously you take it.
0: Linda Shaw who's played by Gail Patrick is one of the few who like doesn't have a shtick, except I guess her shtick is that she's sleeping with a producer, but she is very icy in a way that I find to be captivating.
1: Narratively. She is there so that Ginger Rogers can have somebody that she's feuding with because it's fun to have Ginger Rogers be feuding with somebody. And she and Catherine Hepburn are obviously going to fall in love about 15 minutes into the movie. Right. But like, you're right that other than this feud with Jane with ginger rogers character there's not that much to linda in a way where like other girls when they interact with each other still have their like shtick
0: linda is just really world weary it's almost like she's just given up on acting and is just like whatever i have this producer paying my bills i don't care yeah because you never hear her talking about parts and everybody else is like oh i auditioned for this or i'm doing this thing or you know whatever it is it's really really charming movie and the hard left turn that it takes with Kay—I mean i really didn't think they could land it it was like you hit really really bad turbulence right at the end and somehow they like brought it in for a pretty smooth landing
1: really until she starts climbing that staircase i kept waiting for like Okay, so when does Catherine Hepburn figure out that Kay should be playing her part and swap out?
0: Right, right.
1: Like when like how are we doing that? Is like Kay understudy or like what's going on? And then like she just walks up the stairs and you hear her scream really up until she goes on stage, Catherine Hepburn goes on stage. I didn't think they were going to land it. That like when Ginger Rogers comes in and starts giving her shit for Kay dying. It feels like you're in this other film where the, like, unhappy ending is not earned. We're just amping up the drama for the Oscars, you know? But, like, one, the tone comes back from the total nihilism of that five-minute stretch to something more positive at the end. And Mm -hmm. two, they do something with the pathos instead of just, it's time for the, like, sweet, innocent good one to die because the world's a terrible place which is what you're afraid it's going to play as. And in fact, they specifically have Catherine Hepburn go like, is that what we're doing? Is that the thing this is? Because fuck that. (laughs) If, like, Kay is supposed to be some sacrifice the theater demands, then screw that, I'm going to her funeral, peace out, bye. Right. Which is great.
0: The lesson that's learned there is not, like oh, well, New York chews women up and spits them out. The lesson is women have to make sure that that doesn't happen to other women. Yes. In a way, it's a very timely movie for right now. (laughs) So as far as like standing the screen test of time, I think it's very solid there.
1: Yeah. And like, I don't really want to, you know, not just because it's Pride Month, I don't want to throw out the like big lesbian energy thing because like that's there. It was there the whole time. I think it's just aged better and better. Yeah. Nikki and I are watching the Good Omens adaptation that just dropped on Hulu. They really kind of amp the text end of the subtext of the relationship between the two main characters, the angel and demon character that always had a little bit of a gay subtext in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's like... Oh, no, they're just openly announcing that they're trying to explore a gay relationship and can't do it because it's freaking them out in a way that's like, oh, that's aged super well in the intervening years. And it's always there and we're seeing it more and it's more interesting now than it was in 37.
0: And I think also the stuff with the creepy serial abuser producer is unfortunately feels very timely as well. And the fact that he doesn't really get much of a comeuppance is also unfortunately very timely.
1: The most pessimistic part of the ending is that the last time you see Anthony Powell, the Adolf Menju character, he is, one, being asked by a reviewer whatever happened to that lead from his play last year. What was her name? And he remembers Kay's name but has no connection to the fact that he just got told she died.
0: Or that she had tried to get an audition or talk to him about this part. For months. Yeah. And then all it took was some guy walking in and being like, well, I got money for him to cast a total unknown.
1: Not only is there no come up, and there is a sense like wheels going to keep on turning. Nothing got disrupted here in any permanent sense. Right. Which is why I think, like, you're right. It's so important that the moral becomes no, we personally have to keep this from happening again we didn't win. We didn't stop it forever. We didn't even stop it this time. We just know now we have to stop it.
0: They have to take care of one another. Yeah, there's almost like a in drag in the early 80s. You know, you had houses and you'd have like the mother who took care of everybody and made sure that like everybody was safe, because nobody else cared about them. And there is that feeling in stage door that Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers by the end have become like the house mothers to these girls because the woman who runs the boarding house is like worthless as far as that's concerned like she was on stage with sarah bernhardt once in you know 1890 or something and like as much as we even see anything of her she very much lives in the past in this kind of fantasy world and is not aware of the shit that's going on with the girls who live in her house
1: it's not quite that she is checked out it is that she is reliving her glory days through these younger women in a way that's, like, kind of healthy for them because it gives them this space that they need to, like, live their lives. There is a freedom in the person who's supposed to be looking out for you not caring. (laughs) In that, like, they're all willingly entering into this relationship, knowing that's kind of what's going on, because that's kind of what they want. right? But you definitely get that sense in that last scene. I mean, the bit with the cat turning out to be a woman is great, but it is also great that Katherine Hepburn is instantly keyed in the moment she hears one of the girls is having a problem. That she just instantly is like, what's going on? Who is it? What do I need to do? And then is able to just switch back into the light touch of the banter when she figures out it isn't actually a problem.
0: One of the things I really like about Catherine Hepburn's character in this movie is that she is in some ways insufferable and in some ways really lovely and in some ways she is extremely naive. You know, she talks about like her grandparents being pioneers and says something to the effect of if they didn't do that, there would still be Apaches living in Kansas City or something like that. And one of the other girls says, well, who do you think's living there now?
1: Yeah. The other thing we watched this weekend um, was uh, Always Be My Maybe, the new romantic comedy on Netflix, mm-hmm. which is very, very good. And one of the things Nikki and I, my wife, were talking, my wife, we're talking about <laughs> was that one of the things that makes a good romantic comedy is that you're reminded both of them are insufferable regularly. Right. That's what makes this a great romantic comedy with Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers, is you are regularly reminded that, like, God, nobody in the world could put up with the other one except the other one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Because Catherine Hepburn has, like, this naivete about how the world works, but that naivete also in some ways can be very positive and lends itself to her believing that she can do anything that she's not been beaten down yet, which is how she ends up walking into Adolf Menju's office and chewing him out where none of the other girls would ever dare do that because they've been beaten down. And Ginger Rogers is so cynical, but what's really lovely about that is that when someone extends any kind of real affection toward her, she accepts it because she's obviously very hungry for it. Like the scene where she comes home drunk.
1: God, that scene's great.
0: And Catherine Hepburn like undresses her and puts her to bed. And is like, she keeps saying that everything was wonderful. And Catherine Hepburn says, yes, in the morning, you're going to have a terrific hangover. And that's not going to be so wonderful. <laughs> but for now, like you go to sleep. Their relationship is really, really clearly filling a void in the other person.
1: God, Ginger Rogers does not play drunk realistically, but Ginger Rogers playing drunk is great.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way that she plays drunk makes it slapstick. Yeah. When she has the turn from like happy drunk to sad drunk, it's so like, (laughs) and then it's funny instead of being tragic.
1: By the way, Adolf Minjer's character has an all time great. I've not dated many women in my life, so I didn't, Develop one of these, but I've seen a couple of guys with them. Their routine, the like performance of having a woman over.
0: Oh yeah. It is so Pat.
1: It's so Pat. I was once roommates with a guy who, when he would bring a woman over, would start playing Elvis Costello's My Aim is True really loud in the apartment, which is like, why did you think that was going to get her into bed? It apparently did several times.
0: He thought it because it worked.
1: <laughs> I feel the same way about Adolph Minjoo trying to fucking use Pygmalion to get in a girl's pants. That, like, what? why would you think that story would do it for her?
0: I, I mean, I guess, like, you know, the Shaw play was on people's minds. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: guess. But it is great that, like, Ginger Rogers immediately picks up on the melancholy super not feminist, not even subtext of that story, and just starts openly weeping about the statue never asked to be brought to life, (laughs) which is fantastic.
0: And that she doesn't get to be married (laughs) because there wasn't marriage back then, is what Adolf Medrin tells her. She's like, she doesn't even get married! (laughs) (laughs) it's really delightful i want to talk about andrea Leeds though because throughout the whole movie every time that Kay comes into the picture there is a there is a darkness and there is a sadness that descends into the movie and she seems to be very much alone in the movie like she doesn't engage in the banter that much and part of it is that she's kind of hiding in her room because she's behind on the rent the first thing that we actually see with her is her saying mr powell wasn't available today but i'm gonna go see him next week or whatever and then all the girls sort of scatter and the boarding house runner i don't even know what you call a woman who runs a boarding house the woman who runs the boarding house says you know you're three weeks behind and i'm really sorry but like i can't just let you not pay rent and she gives her her last ten dollars And says that, you know, she hasn't been eating meals at the house. And then we find out, like, she hasn't been eating, basically, at all. At one point, Hattie, who is the cook, says, Oh, I've been experimenting with some stuff. Why don't you try this and tell me if it's any good? Everybody's kind of aware of what's going on, but they're not talking about it openly. She does break down and cry to Ginger Rogers on the stairs at one point. And yet, despite the fact that, like, every scene that she's in is really, really a bummer... In this movie that is otherwise very light and fluffy and funny for the most part. Andrea Leeds is wonderful and you actually care about this person. Or I did anyway.
1: Oh, for sure. I looked up Andrea Leeds and she apparently retires about two years from now in Screen Test of Time time when she gets married. And I think it's a huge loss because she's fantastic in this. I mean, big gain for her husband, but huge loss for acting. She pulls off that turn, and I agree with you that even though, like, on paper, every scene with her is so desperately tragic. She hasn't been eating. My God, she starts weeping at her own birthday party. But, like, it's so lived in and, like, she is so delightful that it plays as, when are we going to help Kay be happy? and not as like a precursor to the tragedy to come. I'm torn because a little bit I think the movie's biggest weakness is how much the tragedy to come seems to come out of nowhere. But I also don't feel like Andrea Leeds has anything to do with that. She does this great job with a fundamentally tragic character not making her seem marked for death, which is a thing we've complained about before. Mm -hmm. But like, Something kind of has to mark death, right? Like, there's got to be something somewhere so it doesn't seem quite so random.
0: Right. Like, there was something in her past where she had, you know, tried this before, she had a history of depression, or something, because really what it feels like is she's this very fragile, very hopeful girl who has fallen on hard times, and you- God, I- I just wanted to protect her so much. Like, I could understand why everybody in the house wanted to take care of her, even while they're giving each other shit all the time. Yeah. Like, no one ever gives Kay shit. And she actually was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this. Um, And in a movie where you could, like throw a dart and hit any number of people you could nominate for that role. I think she's the right choice.
1: Absolutely. And like, honestly, I'm like looking it up because I'm trying to see, I guess we will find out when we watch In Old Chicago in two weeks from now, whether the Academy made the right choice on that. But I like, certainly in the movies we've watched so far in 1937, I can't think of a better choice for Best Supporting Actress. She's fantastic.
0: I can't believe that Claire Trevor, who played Francie, In Dead End... (laughs) The ex girlfriend of the mobster was nominated. That's not even a best supporting role. That's a cameo.
1: Yeah, for sure. They just wanted to nominate somebody from Dead End and who are you gonna do?
0: Yeah, I mean I guess
1: I mean, just honestly outside of this movie, it's the like kind of best female performance we've seen. If it weren't if it weren't for Pesky Ginger Rogers and Catherine Hepburn.
0: Oh those jerks.
1: She'd be the best non supporting actress we've seen in nineteen thirty seven.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so should we rate this movie?
1: Um, yeah. Uh, I was going back and forth between a 7 and an 8, and I think I'm gonna go with an 8.
0: Yeah, I'm- I'm gonna go- uh, I'm gonna go with an 8, too. Maybe- maybe, like, yeah. pushing to an eight and a half.
1: Yeah, I got the feeling that I was waffling between a 7 and an 8, near waffling between an 8 and a 9.
0: Yeah, I mean, I- I honestly don't see much that is wrong with this movie at all. Like- Actually, personally, I don't see anything wrong with this movie. I thought it was really captivating. It's short and felt shorter. Like, I was never bored in this movie at
1: all. I took a little longer than you, I think, to really, like, lock into the banter, which I think is probably the big difference here. Mm -hmm. I think it is a problem how much the tone shift feels like a sudden left turn tone shift. I think a theoretical version of Stage Door that I gave a 10 to, I would feel like oh god it's finally happening more than like wait what now is she gonna oh god um
0: yeah i definitely felt like there could have been some hints you know like her hearing voices and and the and the voices are panned really hard so it's like
1: yeah it's
0: i mean it's it's very hitchcock really The tone of the breakdown, even more than the breakdown, comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, the breakdown seems like, God, it was just a matter of time. Kay can only tolerate so much. This poor girl is very, is obviously, like, very sensitive and fragile and has been put through hell. But the tone of it was not that a woman had been broken. It was that, oh, secretly all along, she's been like seriously unwell and like has some kind of underlying mental health condition. And I didn't feel that was earned.
1: I think that's true. And I also think that like the movie so wildly switches, not just sort of like what's narratively going on there, but like tone in a way that like, Hitchcock you're right is the read there that it goes from like a ginger Rogers Fred Astaire comedy tone to full Hitchcock in like a cut like that's that's it yeah yeah that's really jarring and you kind of need to prime the audience for that a little bit which in the grand scheme of things is like Nobody's in racist Chinese makeup for the entire movie. Yay! What the hell am I complaining about?
0: There is that, (laughs) and it doesn't have fucking Paul Mooney in it. Yeah. With or without racist Chinese makeup, because fuck that guy. There is something to be said for the fact that it manages to take that hard left and then still bring it in and stick the landing, but it shouldn't have wobbled so hard. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, you gotta knock points off for that. Yeah. Should you watch this movie? I say absolutely yes.
1: I say yes. I have a little bit more of a reservation of, like, this feels like a 30s movie. It is weirdly the first movie I think we've ever watched that, like, probably plays better in 2019 than it played in 1937. That, like, the screen test of time kind of did it favors. Right. One, because you can way more blatantly just go, like, yay, Ginger Rogers and Catherine Hepburn should make out. (laughs)
0: And Like <laughs> you could you could absolutely do a stage production of this right now yeah. as a period piece and it would totally read. Yes. But it does feel like a nineteen thirties movie But it feels like a 1930s movie in the way that we have romanticized 1930s movies and not, oh, my God, 1930s movies were fucking dreadful.
1: (laughs) Right. I I think it is more a thing of like, listen, if old movies aren't your thing, this is still an old movie in a way where like I'm not going to do the full on like. This is better. Nah, honestly, no. I keep going back and forth. I really like this movie. I just keep trying to find a way to express that I like it slightly less than you. I had. I you could just say
0: you're straight.
1: Oh, I mean, well, for <laughs> sure. Yes.
0: I mean, like that may be that may be a lot of it.
1: <laughs> I'm wherever you are on the Kinsey scale, if you like women and also kind of get it with David Tennant. <laughs> that that's about it but like i i i I,
0: (laughs) so a one and a half
1: (laughs) yeah somewhere around there
0: all right cool yeah
1: (laughs) but um yeah i think honestly that that about sums it up i had a good time with this movie i didn't have a like drag nikki from the other room and go like we've got to watch this movie again time with this movie but i also am straight so that probably has a lot to do with it. If they played this at the, like, New Beverly and I could watch this on the big screen, I would do it instantly.
0: If you are a woman and you like women, watch this movie.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I will not qualify it in any other way. <laughs> yeah. But it is definitely, like, a bit- it has big lesbian energy. It does not have, like, big party trick lesbian energy. It is not lesbian energy for the male gays.
1: No. Like, it's, like- <laughs> It It has big lesbian energy in the way that, like, women talking about their male dates and how exhausting they all are has big lesbian energy. <laughs> that, that, like, when are we- <laughs> when are we gonna give up this charade, big lesbian energy, and not, like- Wouldn't it be crazy if we just all started kissing? Like, that is not the vibe at all.
0: No, no. Which is not to say that I don't think that straight men could enjoy this movie. I I absolutely think that they could, because it is full of beautiful women. And it's funny and clever.
1: Yeah. And like, honestly, I think even with a straight read, this is a pretty good movie. Yeah. It's not like some like racist disaster that's being propped up by Katherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers' relationship. It's a pretty good movie that when you read it the right way is a really great movie.
0: I'm sure that it has been discussed in like numerous queer studies film classes.
1: (laughs) Oh, for sure. Uh,
0: And if not, you should do that if you are a queer studies professor who teaches a film class. Get get on this movie. Do not sleep on it. So for next week.
1: Yeah, next week we're watching... Is that another musical?
0: We're watching The Awful Truth.
1: That poster l- looks like a, a musical, but I guess it isn't.
0: It's a screwball comedy.
1: Hooray!
0: Starring Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. Yeah, you say hooray, but like I always worry <laughs> with anything that I see that says screwball comedy... In this period, that that means that at some point there's going to be some total racist trash.
1: That's true. And also, it's about a divorced couple. So there's like a 95% chance that the moral's going to be about how he. Oh, it
0: will be sexist as hell.
1: Yeah, that he needed to fuck around and he was totally justified in interfering with all her relationships.
0: Yeah. Skippy's in it, though. The dog from The Fed Man.
1: Okay, that's something. We always.
0: Yeah. <sighs> I-, I like Skippy. I like Carrie Grant. You know Why Who doesn't like Carrie Grant?
1: Sorry, I'm just I'm just noticing Skippy's character's name is Mr. Smith, the dog.
0: Well, that's absurd because his name is Skippy.
1: Well, no, what his name is Astra. Didn't we establish when it was Astra?
0: Asta. Asta. Asta you're right. Yes. Uh, apparently, Skippy proved difficult to work with, but we'll see. Uh... Why? Well, maybe that's... it's because Skippy was just like, I hate this misogynistic garbage.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably just history being written by the victors where like maybe Skippy thought Cary Grant was difficult to work with and he got to write a, a biography and Skippy didn't.
0: Or at least history being written by those who can write.
1: Yeah, that, that <laughs> does help.
0: So uh, tune in next week. When we find out whether or not a movie about a divorced couple in the 1930s can be anything other than terrible. Yep. Yeah. And until then...
1: This was a fanfic.
0: Happy Pride. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> it, it was a fanfic, but the best. Why she hated to leave a dump like this is a mystery. Oh, I know how she feels. To me, it would be like leaving the house where I was born. Well, at least she'll have a couple of kids to keep her company in her old age. And what do we have? Some broken-down memories and an old scrapbook, which nobody will look at. We're probably a different race of people. Maybe. Tonight, I feel like sitting out in the moonlight, having somebody hold my hand.